Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. I have a few announcements, three actually, but I'll keep them quick. If you're helping with VBS and you've maybe corresponded with Katie about what shirt size you're wearing, the shirts are in this large classroom. Right after church, you can grab them. So that's one. Two, um, if you haven't gotten a chance, there's only about four more weeks before our summer interns are going back to their colleges, back to their families, before they have to be out of here. And so what I want to encourage you is if you haven't gotten a chance to invite them over for food or to take them out to lunch or anything like that, I'd encourage you to uh, take that opportunity. And then the third thing, next Sunday, immediately after church, there's going to be a meeting in the annex for anyone who wants to come. You don't have to come if you don't want to, but you're all welcome because we're going to be trying something a little different this fall, and uh, we're going to actually have an intern that's going to be here during the year, not just a summer intern. And we felt like we, meaning me and the elders, felt like that was something that the church ought to have an opportunity to hear about exactly what we're going to be doing since it's pretty new. I, completely new. And so if that's something you'd like to know more about what that's going to look like and some of those logistics, I'm calling it a youth ministry resident, kind of like, you know, to make it sound like official, like a doctor resident or something. Um, but they're going to, we're going to have that meeting next Sunday in the annex. So we've been doing a series and this is the last message in a 10 part series called the powerful and the powerless and the bottom line and I kind of went back and forth because I've heard some preachers who are let's just say they're very good preachers say that one of their goals when they preach is to not say anything that you could lose somebody who's just a, a stranger that came in through the door. I know we don't always have a ton of visitors in here, especially not a ton of visitors that have never heard of Jesus, but they always say, you know, maybe try to have a message where if someone who just for the first time in their life decided, I want to go hear about Jesus, came in off the street, would they be confused by your sermon? And so some of those preachers say they try to almost never preach a sermon on Revelation because it's pretty confusing, okay? So today I'm breaking that rule because you cannot preach a sermon on the powerful and the powerless without talking about revelation, okay? So if you want to get it, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. And if you're visiting and you've never heard about Jesus before, it's the very, very last book in your Bible. If you want to turn there, one of the things about revelation is it's... Uh, usually a lot of people don't read it because it's incredibly confusing, which I understand. And then... Another side is that usually a lot of people read it wrong because they think it isn't confusing and they think they know exactly what's being said and they're saying, oh, well, you know, this part here, that's talking about the Chinese government there, you know, and it's just absolutely not right. And um, one of the things that's really crucial and something that we have to grab hold of, and I, I, as much as I can, I want to explain this. This writing right here, as confusing as it is to us, would have made a lot of sense to people reading it back then because it was a type of writing that they would have been, uh, you know, they would have made sense to them. It's called apocalyptic literature. Um, and we see it in different parts of the Bible, especially Daniel. Daniel's the other place where this is common. So anyway, one of the things that if you're reading Revelation, there's a few different main themes. I talked about one of the main themes last week. One of the main themes is that there's two teams. One that looks like it's winning and one that looks like it's losing. 
And you have to decide which team are you going to be on, the one that looks like it's losing or the one that looks like it's winning, because it matters which team you pick. And guess what? When you pick the team with Jesus, you're going to win in the end. At the end of the day, we'll win, quote unquote. The other theme that I think is really seen throughout that I'm going to be talking about a lot today is this idea of balancing these two words, persecution and conquering. Throughout Revelation, you can tell there's tons of persecution. This would have been written whenever Domitian, not Nero, but whenever Domitian would have been persecuting Christians. And you see tons of persecution language in here. But you also see tons of language of this idea of Christians conquering or overcoming. So keep these two things in mind and go ahead and turn to Revelation 5 is where we're going to be today. Melissa, would you mind... uh, Since I'm doing a big reading, would you mind pushing the um, slides through for me? As I read, I'm going to pause here or there, but um, I'm hoping that you will not get too confused in some of this weirdness, uh, but I'll try to pause along the way to help out. Everything in Revelation, for the most part, has some kind of symbol to it. I mentioned it in class a few times, but if you see, for example, like the number 10, that symbolizes completeness. If you see the number 7, that symbolizes uh, completeness or, or God's number. Number 12 always symbolizes God's number, anytime you see the number 12. So anyway, I'll, I'll kind of try and give you some clues. It's all very symbolic. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, him who sat on the throne is God, Then I saw in the right hand of God a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It's completely sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Part of what you're supposed to see symbolized is seeing inside the scroll is like seeing what God's plan for heaven and earth is, seeing his, what he's going to enact here on heaven and earth. You, you know that phrase, uh, um, I want to know your will, God. I think you're supposed to kind of picture the scroll has the will of God, what he's going to be doing, and no one was able to open it. Um, Where are we? Uh, I'm on verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He has conquered. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So here's something that he's going to do. We're going to look at two examples of this in John. It's really creative. Where you see that John hears something... And then he sees something else, okay? He hears one thing and sees something else. How many of you have ever interviewed someone on the phone or spoken with someone on the phone for a long time, and then you meet them in person and they don't look like what you expect? Has that ever happened to you before? You're kind of like, oh, there's a podcast I listen to where the guy who speaks has this really grainy, he sounds like he smokes like six packs a day, and he sounds like he maybe was born in the 40s and this like kind of, all right, guy. That's how he sounds. And then I see a picture of him, and he's like five years older than me. And I remember the first time kind of being like, there's no way I would have met him and thought, oh, I know who you are. I've heard you before. So think about that. And this is almost what you should picture is John, who's writing this revelation that he's having. He hears the lion of the tribe of Judah. He hears the root of David. And what you're supposed to picture is all of these things are associated in the Old Testament with the military conquest of God's Messiah, the Lion of Judah. Very fierce 
intense, going to conquer. But then when he turns and he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The four living creatures kind of symbolize the cherubim. The cherubim are there in the Garden of Eden. They stand, cherubim symbolize standing in the, the gateway between heaven and earth. They stand in the, the way between the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. These cherubim are standing around this gateway between heaven and earth. Uh, let me get back to it. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Uh, you're supposed to, seven, like I said, symbolizes God and symbolizes completeness. And so seven eyes symbolizes all seeing. If you have seven eyes, complete eyes, he sees everything. A horn symbolizes power. Throughout the Old Testament, David says, God, lift up the horn of my salvation. Lift up my strength. So it has seven horns. So it's completely powerful, all powerful, all seeing, all strength. Um, which were the seven spirits of God sent out over all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand. The lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, 24 is 12 times 2, symbolic of all God's elders, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircle the throne, the living creatures and the elders. All these things sound a whole lot like Isaiah and Ezekiel's visions of what the throne room of God looks like. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So one of the things that I want to point out from this passage specifically is that what you're supposed to see is that the king is a slain lamb. And I, I thought about putting a picture up here, but then I decided it would maybe be too graphic. But... Often when we see rosy pictures of Jesus seated on the throne, we see just a cute little lamb lying there. The picture isn't a cute lamb. It's a lamb covered in blood that's been slaughtered. And part of what you're supposed to see, and it's what I've been trying to describe throughout this whole series, is that in our world, when you see strength, you don't see a dead lamb. When you see strength and power, you see all sorts of things that you see in Revelation. You see a dragon, you see a lion, you see a beast, you see these big, powerful things. And yet the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the one who deserves honor and power and glory, all those things, but not because he conquered through power, but because he gave up his power and he conquered through being slain. slain. The symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb is crucially important to understanding this book. John is saying that the Old Testament promises of God's future kingdom were inaugurated through the crucifixion of a lamb, through the crucifixion of the Messiah. Jesus died for his enemies as the true Passover lamb so that others can be redeemed. His death on the cross, his dying, is the enthronement 
of the way of what it looks like to conquer evil. And so I mentioned earlier, we've got persecution and conquering. And what you're going to see throughout is that the world thinks of conquering in one way, and Scripture throughout, throughout Scripture looks at conquering and overcoming and victory as persecution, as dying, as laying down of your life. It's such a weird, it's a weird thing. It's upside down. It's almost as weird as loving your enemy. It's almost as weird as the first shall be last. It's this reversal of everything you expect. And so we see another example of this in Revelation 7, when we're going to have this interesting passage. If you turn to Revelation 7, your subheading, many of your Bibles probably says 144,000 sealed. Okay, where did that number come from? Well, I told you earlier, 12 stands for God's people. 10 stand, represents complete and total. So if all 12 tribes of Israel, all 12, all of God's people, have 12,000 people, all of the people of God's people, times 10, times 10, times 10. It just, it doesn't mean that there's only going to be 144,000 people in heaven. We'd be in trouble. I think there's probably 144,000 people better than me. But what it symbolizes is all of God's people. And what's cool is in this, this is exactly what it would have looked like in the Old Testament or in old times whenever a ruler was going to have a military census, Okay. Does anybody know what a military census is? Does that make sense to you? It's the idea of a king trying to figure out how big is my army. If I had to go to war right now, who all would be in my troops? Texas is going to have 50,000 or a million. Uh, uh, Delaware is going to only have this many. And it, you get this idea of a military census that's being taken place. And we see from 4 and 5, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, who were a part of God's army. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, so on and so forth. And then we skip down to verse 9. And so this is another example of you hear one thing and then he's going to see something else. You heard of the line of Judah, but we see that the powerful one is a slain lamb. He hears, oh man, I'm about to see this awesome army of God. 144,000 strong. Let me, let me see how strong this army looks, how powerful the army of God is. But what he sees is different. After this, I looked and I saw there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then we skip a little bit further down in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. Earlier in just a section before, there's this part where there's this question, when the day of the Lord comes, who's going to be able to stand? Who's going to be able to stand before God? And this is the answer. Sir, you know who's going to be able to stand before God. You know who these people are. These are they who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that a great paradox? They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so what you see is that this isn't what he expected. This is not some military conquerors, these mighty people. These, this is the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb that can stand before God, not because they are powerful, but they can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And they are called forth to conquer. Hey, let's go conquer the world. 
But the conquering isn't going to look like what the powerful conquering looks like. It's going to look like the conquering of the Lamb, which means it's going to look like not by killing our enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the Lamb did. Okay? You with me? So part of... Oh, hey, there we go. One. We need to keep a ticker in the back or something. Uh, and so we get this amazing scene, and we see this throughout Revelation over and over. And, and here's where I want to land uh, and kind of spend most of my time the, the rest of this. Any literature or speaker or piece of art or anything, a song in history that bears any weight, and when I say bears weight, meaning it's something that will last for a long time, okay? Um, anything like that that bears any of that, it usually wants to talk about some of these major life questions. What does it mean to be a human? What does truth, where does truth come from? What brings joy? What is, what is the purpose of life? You, you know, all these big questions, okay? Some of you are like, my favorite songs are just about a guy falling in love with a girl. Yes, but guess what? At a deep level, that's touching on something powerful of how central love is. Does that make sense? And another one that I would say is something that's clearly throughout major pieces of literature, major pieces of art, of history, is the question of who has the power? Where does power come from? What does real power look like? How do you take power away from people? What does power do to people? How does it corrupt people? How does it strengthen people? How do you fight people with power without becoming the very thing that you're trying to defeat? And this is so clear in Revelation. And part of what you're supposed to see and what's so powerful about Revelation is part of all the symbolism is to make one thing true. If you ask the question, well, is this book talking about the Roman oppression of Christians? Yep. But guess what? Because it's so symbolic, it can also be talking about any time, any place, any group of people who are being persecuted or are in going through tribulations by a powerful organization. What powerful organization, Drew? Is it Rome? Sure. Is it the German Third Reich? Sure. Is it something that's coming in the future? All of it is applicable because it's symbolic. Does that make... Are you with me? Yeah. And so, the thing that I want you to see in this, and the thing I want you to hear, is that in Revelation, there are many beasts. There's a dragon, there's a beast from the abyss, and each of these things just symbolizes that powerful thing that's going to take over through raw power and raw strength. And the question that Christians are asked with is, are you going to align with them, or are you going to align with the slain lamb? Are you going to conquer through power and might, through wealth, through war? Are you going to conquer through a lamb who decided to say, I'll let you kill me? But guess what? The Bible is perfectly clear that the one who will conquer in the end, the one who is worthy of honor and power and glory, the one who sits upon the throne is the slain lamb, not the dragon, not the beast from the abyss. While one looks like conquering, while one looks like conquering, we will truly overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so throughout this, oh, let me go to here. Per persecution for Christ and conquering through Christ are synonymous. Every time you find yourself in a situation where you're thinking, I'd really like to, you know, we, a prayer that I love to pray in here is to say, we're thankful that we have a place where we can come together and not be persecuted for being Christians. That's a good thing to pray. I'm thankful for that. But you know what? Even if we weren't legally allowed to worship, even if we weren't allowed to meet without facing persecution, guess what we're getting to do? We are conquering with the Lamb. We are one of God, the Lamb's army. And, and the answer isn't to say, well, we've got to fight for our right 
to get to keep meeting? Sure we can, but guess what? It won't stop us because we're not meeting here because the powers give us the right to meet here. We're meeting here because the Lamb of, is our Lord, is our King, and we're going to meet together. One of the things that uh, I was thinking about as I was finishing up this series is uh, how, how long ago was it that I preached that Good Life series? Do you all remember? It wasn't that long ago, right, where I was talking about how the Bible is constantly talking about there's a way that brings life and there's a way that brings death. And it's not one of those things where if you do these bad things, God's going to hurt you. And if you do these good things, God's going to bless you. No, it's just God has woven into our world different things that when you forgive, life springs. When you hold on to hate, death erodes. It's just how God made our world. And so one of the things I've been thinking about is I can picture someone sitting in here and saying, okay, Drew, let me get this straight. If I make my life self-centered and all about myself, I want to do whatever I want, whatever I think is right, I'm going to do it. You're telling me that that leads to death. And so I shouldn't do that. I should listen to what God says is right. Yes, I'm saying that. But what you're also saying, that part of following Christ and part of following the Lamb is a life that looks like making Christ the center of my life, but it also looks like persecution and rebuke and carrying my cross and a life of tribulation. Yes, I'm saying that. Well, Drew, those both sound like pretty bad options. Those sound like death either way, okay? And what I'll tell you is, yes, both of them, both of them uh, sound pretty rough. But a life spent pursuing Christ will be difficult and full of trouble and full of persecution. But as Scripture says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I want you to see that the power that uh, the way of Jesus, the way of following the cross... One thing he's saying to you is it looks like you have no power. It looks like you have no leverage. But I want, you to tell you, I want to tell you about something that is true power and true freedom. It's the ability to look at anything in our circumstances and say, you can't win the day because I have Jesus. Doesn't that sound like the ultimate freedom? To be able to look at anything. I, I picture Jesus before Pilate when he says, don't you want to say anything? Don't you know that I can kill you? And what does, Pilate, what does Jesus say to Pilate? He says, you think you have power, but you have no power over me. Can you imagine kind of sitting there and Pilate's like, wait a second, don't you see where you are? Don't you see I'm up here on this throne, you're down there in chains or with just looking like you're about to die? Of course I have the power and you don't. But what Jesus is saying is, with me, it will look like persecution and tribulation. You will experience carrying your cross. But with me is this ultimate freedom, this ultimate power that says, you can't hurt me. How could you hurt Pilate? How could you hurt someone in charge? You take away their power. You take away their army. You take away their wealth. You take away those things, and, and they don't have it anymore. But with Jesus, he says, you take away all that stuff that I have, and I'm great because I've still got God. I still and the Messiah. I don't need those things. It sounds an awful lot like what Paul says in Philippians 4. In Philippians 4, Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He's talking to the Philippians. I'm so glad that y'all renewed your caring for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He said, I knew all along. Y'all were concerned about me. I just, I didn't get a chance to see it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That's power. That's lamb power. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That is power that comes from knowing I'm not, fo I'm not following the powerful. I'm following the powerless one. And there we find true freedom, true power. And if any of you here today or watching online would like to talk more about what it means to have this kind of power, what it means to have a power that will endure, it's obvious to me that this is not the kind of sales pitch that you often hear with church. You want to come be a Christian? You want to come follow Christ? It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful for you. It's going to do so many things for your life and your marriage and all these things. I do believe that this is the true way. But I don't think this is the sermon series where you proclaim it like, doesn't this sound wonderful? The truth of this sermon series is this sounds awful. The truth of this sermon series is that this sounds like a way we naturally don't want to go. And yet throughout the gospel, the gospel writers are trying to say, I'm telling you this is the way. I'm telling you, this is the truth. This is the place where you're going to find real power and you're going to find real freedom. Ask any person who has held a grudge of hating someone for a long time. Ask me, is that person free? Not at all. Now tell me someone who says to that person, you know what, I can't carry this anymore. I forgive you. Whether you forgive me or at not, or I, not, not, don't say I forgive you. Say I'm sorry. Whether I've done anything I think is wrong or not, I'm sorry for this. And then when they walk away, ask that person if they're experiencing real power and real freedom. Because that's the truth. The world will try and convince you that the beast and the dragon and all these powerful things really are in charge. And it seems like they are. But the truth is, is that the slain lamb is in charge. And we won't necessarily see that in this life, but we will in the one that counts. If any of you would like to know more about that, or if you have any prayer requests, elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and while we sing this song.